Welcome to Because and Effect, a podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation, where we talk to people about the causes they care about and the effect that it has on their lives. My name is Nolan Bicknell. We're back for a brand new season of Because and Effect, and I couldn't be more thrilled to welcome Aisha Khan to the podcast. Aisha is the new CEO of the Canadian Museum for Human Rights, and she only stepped into the job a couple of months ago. Aisha is a human rights lawyer, former executive director and senior counsel for the Manitoba Human Rights Commission, founder of the Canadian Council of Muslim Women's Winnipeg chapter, and she spent time reviewing conditions of federal penitentiaries. She is truly an advocate and expert in human rights. It helps to approach conversations around human rights from the to go back to the foundations of what they are. So we all have rights. The fundamental principle, we're all born free and equal in dignity and in rights. And when we have those difficult conversations, um, people tend to talk about, oh, they're their rights or those people, and this is what they want. And it's to remind them that we all have these rights and that they're like they're for everyone. I sat down to talk to Aisha through a video chat to talk about the concepts of equity, diversity, and social justice, the vision and mission for the future of the CMHR, and how to have the tough conversations and make real progress fighting for human rights. Aisha Khan, CEO of the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. Welcome to the Because and Effect podcast. It's great to see you. Thanks. Nice to be here. Uh, so we met a couple weeks ago now, but you've been in this role for not even two months, I think. So my first, before we get into human rights and before we get into all the things that you are an expert on, I just want you to let us know sort of what these last couple months have been like with you coming into this new role. And I'm assuming it's just a whirlwind of meetings and figuring out what's going on behind the scenes and trying to kind of find your bearings and figure out how this new role is going to work for you. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's meetings, meetings and meetings and more meetings. Um, but, but what that means is a lot of conversations. Um, uh, my whole approach to coming into this position at the time that I did was that I just wanted to be open and, and talk to people. So those introductory meetings have actually been extremely nourishing in terms of just telling me what people want to see of me, of our museum. Uh, it's been really good. But hectic, no doubt. For sure, no kidding. I mean, you, I, I was kind of researching you, and I, th- I don't want to insult any of our previous guests from the last few episodes, but you seem to be the most educated and like well-rounded, impressive sort of, you know, resume that I've ever seen. Human rights lawyer for years. You uh, are the founder of the Canadian Council of Muslim Women's or uh, Muslim Women's Winnipeg chapter. Um, you are senior counsel for the Manitoba Human Rights Commission, and now the CEO of the CMHR. So in all these different roles, how has it, how has it set you up for this new role of CEO of the CMHR? I mean, all those things have set me up for this work, I think. Um, and, and to be honest, you know, I've had parts in all of those things. Um, I would never claim to say that I founded the Winnipeg chapter. I did it with people in the community, um, you know, friends and, 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 and family, actually. Um, I, worked at the at the match of a human rights commission but with a huge team so so yeah I, I all of that work has contributed it actually has enforced that you can't do this kind of work alone you have to do it with a team of people who have a common vision um, that's why i like going to work because you meet with people who who have the same world view as you and want to get the same things done so um yeah certainly those things have prepared me 
Um, they've given me a lot of insight into the work that I'm going to do now and just expanded my, my view. Got to meet a lot of people from uh, many places that I may not have, have been or, or been able to meet with before. Very cool. Now, I I know you were on the outside looking in as we all were when the allegations against the Human Rights Museum were made and all that kind of stuff bubbled up. It's been reported ad nauseum, so people can Google it if they want to sort of read about what happened. But before we sort of get into the human rights aspect of, of your expertise, I'm, I'm, I think this is probably kind of like if someone has a cast on, they're like, oh, what happened? I'm sure you've been asked thousands of times. But what, what do you say when people ask you about the allegations and everything that went down before you uh, stepped into this new role? Well, I say that um, that I was watching, too, that I probably felt many of the same emotions that 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 others have felt about, you know, disappointment or anger or just questioning, being surprised. Um but but really a lot of what I talk about is uh, the things that I wanted to do and see of this museum were things that that they haven't changed since I heard about the allegations, since the review came out. You know, I wanted to come in here and and do this kind of work. I think every new leader should look around and say, you know, do we have a diverse workplace? How do we treat our staff? How do we interact with our community? You know, who who do we need to have on board with us to 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 be successful. So I talk a lot about that. I, um, in terms of the review, it was, it's good. It's thorough. It gives us a, gives us a framework to do the kind of work that, um, I kind of knew we needed to do that we all should be doing. Right. So watching your speech from the other night when you're sort of, you know, speaking to a lot of donors and a lot of different people that represented the foundation and, and supported the CMHR, you talked a lot about the mission and the mission for the next, you know, year or two years or, or six months even, or, or one month, I guess. Um, and it was pretty inspiring. So I, I want you to kind of just touch a little bit on your mission, your personal mission, your professional mission, and what are you, what are you hoping to um, accomplish in the, let's say first six months and then year and then even five years, like what, what's your plan? What's your mission for the next, uh, you know, amount of time that you'll be there? So I go back to what's the mandate of this museum, uh, and it has a unique mandate because unlike, uh, I shouldn't say unlike uh, other national museums, but, but you know, it's new on the block in terms of the other national cultural institutions and museums. And so um, when it was formed, the idea was that it would be a place for, to reflect, you know, to look at our collective history, but to reflect and to dialogue and have conversations that would inspire people to take action. Um, so that's a big dream. Um, and when people talk about what's my mission, well, well, that's it. It's, it's charted for me. My, my approach to getting there is um, to work with the community around us. Um, when I think about what do I do immediately? Well, I've come in and I want to have, I want our staff to be rallied around that vision. And so that's the work that I'm doing now. So when I talk about meetings and, oh, you know, it's hectic, but really it's getting to know the people I work with, understanding their areas of expertise and how they work, trying to pull that all together so that we move forward together. Um, that's my immediate goal. Um, not to say that I haven't spent time talking to the communities around us because some of it's reestablishing relationships, some of it's building new relationships. I've had difficult conversations with people who um, 
felt that they haven't been part of uh, part of our work or, or our common vision, but yet that's that it, they're passionate about it. So, so that's maybe medium term, right? A little bit uh, when I when I feel like we have we feel stable and we feel strong, then I know that the community around us will be able to work in a more meaningful way with us. Um, so I've been doing that. And then long term, we want to be bold, we want to push, we want to, uh, we want to expand our reach, we want to bring as many people, touch as many people as we can, really, whether that's bringing them into our physical space or virtually. Um, because I think now more than ever, people, people need to think about human rights, they need to think about how we treat each other, think about where we're going as a society and think about why we have the inequities we, we do. So yeah, for sure. So that's not a lot or anything. No, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's not a tall, not a tall order. You know, you'll be fine. Um, how, why did you get into like you could study any area of law and make that your focus, right? Why human rights? Like that's such a, it's such a big concept, right? And it's such a, it's such a interesting and deep and never-ending fight, essentially, because there's always going to be people that are either suppressing or holding back or taking away rights. But where, where did this come from? Have you always been sort of a, a human rights champion or did, did this grow over time or, or how, did, how did this develop? Well, I mean, I think I've, I've always been interested in, in human rights and issues of discrimination and racism and other forms of, of, of oppression. I was, you know, I can think back when I was young, I was, you know, a, a member of Amnesty International and I was writing letters at my dining room table and giving them to my mom to put a stamp on and send off. So I, I, I do remember that for um, when I think about being young. Um, but I studied law because I wanted to be an advocate. Um, I wanted to do something to bring about change. And I didn't immediately go into human rights law. It's, it's kind of a niche area. It's, um, uh, and so I was really privileged to, to do that work with the Manitoba Human Rights Commission. But I think I moved there because I dealt with people, with workplace issues, with um, things that I cared about and I could I could feel I always said it, I needed to do do an area work in an area of law where I could feel that mm -hmm. I was making a difference and so for me that was you know dealing with I was dealing with labor and employment issues um, and where I kind of had my first taste of um, some human rights cases so it's a bit of an evolution. It wasn't like I set out to say, I'm going to be a human rights lawyer. I actually didn't even think I'd be a lawyer. Uh, and then I didn't think I'd do human rights law. And, you know, so. Um, it's weird the paths that we take and the doors that open for us. Like, what do you remember what you wanted to be? You know, that classic question. What did you want to be when you grew up? Yeah, uh, I think I, when I was really young, I wanted to open a daycare center. Uh -huh. um, and then, and then I wanted to be a teacher. And then I thought, oh, I want to be a broadcaster. Mm. Um, uh, and then it, it, it moved into law. I, 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 don't, I, I didn't know as a young child, this is who I'm going to be. I think it's just sort of charted my course as I've moved for the next step. 
Yeah. You I think I always thought about social justice, though. I'll have to say that, you know, I moved into the nonprofit world. I left law for a while and said, I'm going to work in the nonprofit world and this is how I'm going to do it. And then I went back to sort of public advocacy. So I, there's a theme for sure. But I took a meandering route. There is a thread and it seems like this is one of those situations where everything you've done leading up to this point has has prepared you for this role now. Is that fair to say? It feels like it. Yeah. Um, it definitely feels like it. Unplanned, but uh, but it's all sort of falling into place. I feel I feel like I can do this job. Um, not alone, but I feel like I have enough that I can at least have some idea um, about how to how to move forward. And um, and I feel I feel confident in that, which which helps. Has there anything has or I'm sure there's lots of things, but what's some of the biggest surprises in the first couple of months that uh, since you stepped into the CEO role? Um, I don't know if there's surprises, but I've said a number of times to others, I've been really overwhelmed by by the support mm. um, by, you know, I've learned, of course, the reach that uh, that the CMHR has in 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 our local community, but also nationally and internationally, you know, things that I wasn't aware of. So, so that's been really heartening. Um, but probably most, um, it's not really surprising, but, but kind of is that when I've had some really difficult conversations with community, community organizations or individuals who felt that they haven't been part of, um, haven't had a strong relationship or had their voices heard, and they've been difficult conversations, they they almost always have ended with something positive, but we want to work with you, but we do want to, to do this together. Um, certainly from the perspective of we'll hold you accountable and we're going to expect some things of you, but but I really, you know, take that seriously. I, I want to be held accountable because I want to move in the direction that people want us to. Yeah. So, so that's been quite overwhelming in a very, in a very positive and enlightening way, I'd say. So much time building bridges, mending bridges and connecting people, you know, because the CMHR is a institution and it is sort of a, a place that people are going to look to for leadership and for connection and for storytelling and all these things that kind of represent all these big ideas but and you're kind of be you're you've been thrown in as the face of that like you said you wanted to be a broadcaster but how comfortable are you in front of the camera and sort of answering questions and doing all these interviews where people are sort of expecting you to be the face of all these concepts that are sort of these ethereal not necessarily you know do you know what i'm kind of saying is you have to speak for human rights almost and, and, and how how is that um has that weighed on your shoulders at all or are you comfortable kind of speaking in that um context well i i um i try not to overthink it and i figure that I'll be sincere, I'll be authentic, I'll, I'll, I'll share what I can, what my perspective is. Um, and I'll often just share my approach, right, mm. or my, my vision, as opposed to, um, you know, this is my expertise in this area. But, but certainly, you know, I've learned things from from working with people. But, um, so when I think about being the face, um, I think I think there's so much more than just uh, than just me and, and being a leader. I have a huge team of people uh, who 
who I represent. And I'm happy and proud to do that. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. It does. It does. And the best leaders I think that I've followed or that I've seen, there's a balance of confidence and humility, right? And it can't be, you can't be just blindly going your own direction and not listening to anyone else, but you also can't be too meek and shy and, and you have to be willing to, to um, bring forth your ideas and stuff. And you seem to have found that balance quite well. Let's see. Thank you. <laughs> so let's talk about human rights. Um, right now is a crazy time in the last as many years as I can think back on. It's been there's been either through the media or through the news or through local things that we've hear all these human rights abuses. And and you can probably speak to dozens, if not if if not uh, if not more. But the thing that I'm personally struggling with and I think a lot of my peers are struggling with is how do you i don't even know how to phrase this how do you stay calm and argue for in favor of human rights when you're arguing against people who want to take them away do you know what i mean like how do you stay how do you not get frustrated how do you how do you come to the table when one one side of the table is arguing i think everyone should have equality equity and and human rights for all and the other side of the table is saying uh, no to that. Like it, it just seems to me you can't even have a real discussion when people aren't even willing to acknowledge the humanity in the other side. Can you speak to that a little bit? Because it's, it's, it's difficult for me to watch what's happening in the world and come to the conclusion that we could ever um, come to the same page, like be on the same page with the people on the other side of the, of the argument. Can you help me understand that? Well, the way that I look at it, and this is this is how I look at it on my best day, right? Uh, it's that that um, juxtaposition or contradiction between those who 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 want these laudable aspirational goals of equity and equality and justice, and those that perhaps don't want it. And I don't know if those people ever really articulate that they don't want it, but but we feel that there is a contradiction or that there is tension. Bringing those people together, to me, that is where we actually do our best work. Mm. Um, actually, even as you've posed it, thinking about, you know, how does that make you feel when you see these two points of view? that is where we actually open our minds up and say okay that's this is we figure out how to communicate with each other and you know if you move the needle even this much um in terms of someone opening their mind up to think about think about something differently or to have heard someone else's opinion i think we're doing what we're supposed to do like that's where all the magic happens in those difficult conversations and I think about the museum and part of what attracted me here is, again, going back to the vision for, for this space, it's about, it, that's exactly what it's about. It's about dialogue. So I'm attracted to those uncomfortable conversations. Um, you know, on, on my best day, it is frustrating, of course. Uh, it's it's human to feel defeated or or exhausted sometimes by that work, but but it's also the best work. And so for the most part, I, I feel really optimistic um, that 
we can move things if we if we actually bring those people together and those perspectives together. That's the that's the key point because I've noticed a lot when we have events at the Winnipeg Foundation, say we have an event on climate change. 150 people show up, but everyone in the room is already convinced. You know, we everyone that shows up to the events are already kind of on this on the right side of history if you want to call it that. So how do you get people to come to the table that need to be um, enlightened or educated or just sort of shown different perspectives when they might be unwilling to um, entertain new ideas? I think you have to be open enough to entertain their ideas. Hmm. You have to give them a space to share their ideas. Um, it's I, what I've noticed in some of those difficult conversations is you have to sometimes sit back and let them share their view, even though you may find it to be outdated or ignorant or, or whatever it may be, you have to, and not everyone at every moment is prepared to do that. I mean, there are certain lines that we don't cross. So, so, you know, don't misunderstand me that we should put up with hate or, um, in any form but when it's sharing of perspectives there is this place that if you're prepared for it and you can you can um you can actually invigorate that kind of discussion i think we do some really good work at at changing minds opening up ideas that's i think a very important point is Right now, a lot of the rhetoric and a lot of the conversations that happen, um, neither side gives the other side the benefit of the doubt. And everyone's kind of assuming the worst out of everyone. And I I like to think, I, I don't know if I'm an optimist or a realist or what I am, but I like to think everyone's coming from the same place that they want happiness, safety, uh, you know, food for their kids and everyone wants pretty much the same thing. People just argue about how to get there. And if and if people are unwilling to um, give up what they're comfortable with, how do you try to <laughs> change the world when the systems that have been in place have made certain groups quite comfortable and they're scared of giving up those comforts? Do, do you know what I mean? Like how, how, how can you gently explain to people that the way that things have been set up, you have benefited from these systems, but look at this group that hasn't benefited and we need to kind of bring everyone up to that level as opposed to um, keeping two tiers or three tiers of, of our society? I think that you have to, to approach, um, it helps to approach conversations around human rights from the to go back to the foundations of what they are. So we all have rights, right? We are all, you know, the fundamental principle, we're all born free and equal in dignity and in rights. And when we have those difficult conversations, um, people tend to talk about, oh, they're their rights or those people, and mm -hmm. this is what they want. And it's to remind them that we all have these rights and that they're like, they're for everyone. Um, so sometimes that's creating a relatable example um, you know, as you say, people care about their, their families or their children or, you know, putting money on the table. It's to make someone else's story relatable. Um, people then feel it in a different way or it might open their minds up. Um, that's the kind of dialogue that, that um, 
that I think is really inspiring. Um, that's a lot of what we do here at the museum is, is trying to bring in those perspectives, um, which is why I like this work and I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Um, when it comes to Winnipeg specifically, you, you were born here, is that true? Yeah. So what, what, how, what specific issues that Winnipeg is going through do you hope to um, acknowledge and tackle through the CMHR when it comes to Winnipeg's uh, human rights conversation? Well, I mean, I think um, I always say, I've always said, and I've lived elsewhere, but I'm from Winnipeg and I'm back in Winnipeg and have been for a long time. Um, we're a very special place. And then I come here to the museum and I say to our staff every time I have a chance to do, you know, a bigger staff meeting or whatnot, look where we are. We're on Treaty 1 territory. We're at the meeting of the two rivers. We're in the, um, the Red River Valley where the Métis um, uh, nation was formed. This is a pretty special place in terms of gathering. When I think about the issues that we have here, um, inequity amongst many communities, um, but remarkably our indigenous uh, population and people, um, issues of, of poverty and social disadvantage, um, issues of racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, biphobia, all of those things, I mean, they exist all across Canada. I do think though that Winnipeg um, has a strong social justice lens and always has there's 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 wonderful work that happens here in the community and has for years and years um so when i think about us being here i mean we're a national museum um so we so we really do take a broad reach but i know that we have so much here in our community around us and and i i feel lucky that i you know, I, I'm aware, I know, or I, 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 I've been here and I'm a Winnipegger and, and it's Winnipeg is pretty small at the end of the day. Um, and we have very personal connections. So that helps me um, doing the work here will help me broaden the reach of the work we do. Yeah, it's a, it's a big little town and, and having to have that context of like everybody knows everybody. So you better make sure you're cool with everybody almost, right? Like, yeah, it's an important aspect of things. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about your work um, reviewing federal penitentiaries and and <laughs> because that's a crazy concept these days. You know, we hear a lot about for-profit prisons in the States and in and here and just the the quality of life that, that some prisoners um, are dealing with. So can you just maybe give me a brief overview of what you exactly did when it came to reviewing these penitentiaries and what were some of your main takeaways when it came to, you know, what you sort of gained from those experiences? So I left my work at the Manitoba Human Rights Commission to, to do uh, this work as, a, as an external reviewer uh, of cases in which uh, individuals in our federal penitentiaries had been put into, have been segregated from, from the general prison population. Um, so solitary confinement, right? But, but the system had changed and there was already um, systems put in place so that it would be different than, than, than what was. And that's fairly recent. My job was to look at individual cases an individual who's been segregated from the, you know, what they call the general or mainstream population, 
um, and figure out, should they be there? Um, while they're there, what are their conditions? Are they getting access to mental health uh, assessment or treatment? Are they getting their medicines? Are they getting time out to, to exercise, you know, to talk to them? Um, and to talk to to the staff at the at the institution as well, and it was uh, it's it was hard actually to leave that work um, because it's very meaningful work, um, and I guess I don't know if it was fortuitous or but with the pandemic and working from home, um, it meant that I spent a lot of time on video conferences with with men in in institutions, talking to them. So how's it going? How is your day to day? So things going okay? Tell me about it. Is there, you know, and, and, and having those conversations. Um, and I learned a lot. Uh, I, I learned that people need a chance. I shouldn't say I learned, but it definitely confirmed for me that people need a chance to be heard, that they often just want to tell their story and that they have complicated stories. Um, so if we think about systemic factors, how you grew up, what, what you had in front of you, did you have food on the table, all of those issues, um, they're right in your face. And you've got someone who's telling you, this is, this is what I know, this is why I behaved in the way that I did. Um, it, was, uh, it was humbling, really, um, mm -hmm. especially having worked in this in the area of human rights, it was humbling to hear directly from people about their stories and then to think, okay, so what do we do with that? And why haven't we done enough? So what do we do with that? Like, I think, I think the average person, because it's so far removed from our everyday lives, like we don't really think about the people who were taken out of society. And we don't really think about the quality of life of people who were taken out of society because I think for a long time people have thought, oh, well, they lost their rights. They lost their right to a, to mental health support, you know, all these things. But how we treat the, you know, the, the offenders among us speaks a lot about what our society is like, right? So how, what did, what did you take away from that? How, how as a society did we treat these men and women and what needs to change? Um, I learned that everyone has a story uh, and that we should take time to, to hear their story, which means that we, whatever barriers to hearing their story, our own prejudice or bias or time or inefficiency in a system, we need to identify those and find ways of reducing or removing those barriers. Um, uh, so certainly that was probably my biggest takeaway, but, you know, to be hopeful, um, there is good work being done. I mean, the justice system is, is, is looking at sentencing and looking at, um, what principles inform, um, uh, our whole criminal justice system and sentencing. There's advocates who, who are working tire tirelessly to bring these issues, um, out in the media, um, you know, before I came here at the museum, there was work to convene that discussion about um, uh, wrongful convictions and about the stories of people who've been through a system that, um, you know, hasn't treated them as it ought to. So, so there's good work. There's lots of work to do there. Yeah, for sure. And it's about 
reform. It's not about punishment. Well, I mean, that, that's the, that's, I think maybe the crux of the argument is some people think that the criminal justice system is there to punish and some hope that it would be there to fix and to improve and to help and to guide and to educate. But how do you um, have that conversation with someone who's been wronged by theft or murder or whatever you want to say you know like how, how do you how do you convince people that everyone deserves the chance to make it right and and to improve themselves and improve their their, their communities i think you do that um honestly by building an understanding that we all have certain rights that we're born with those rights uh, and we have to respect those rights. Mm -hmm. So it just goes back to that fundamental principle where we're all human beings, we're born with this, this inherent dignity um, and we need to respect that. And, and our institutions and these institutions that we create need to respect that, whether it's a workplace, a business, you know, um, or whether it's a correctional system. I think mm -hmm. that's the understanding we need to build. Yeah. and. No one loses their rights just because they make a bad decision. I think that's the the big part of it is is people think just because you do one like no one should be judged by the worst moment of their life and and that's a pretty common theme I think with with the criminal justice system is like you make this one decision or you go down this one path and then all of a sudden that's what your life is defined by for the rest of your existence and I think if people had more empathy for those moments and say like okay well yes that was terrible but how can we reintroduce you into society in, in a healthy and, and stable and supportive way. But, uh, I mean, you're, you're a human rights lawyer, not a psychiatrist, not a psychologist, like all these things. How did you deal with having these one-on-one -on -one intimate conversations with people who probably haven't had a lot of empathy uh, in their experiences? So, like, was there a, a lot of emotional um, outbursts or, like, you know, moments where people kind of... I, I finally get to tell my story. Someone's actually listening to me or, or had they had those experiences up to that point? Um, I think it varied. You mm. know, I might've talked to someone who'd been um, uh, in an institution for 18 months uh, or someone who'd been there for 14 years. Um, and it, it depends. I think, um, I, I really think that people just want to tell their story and, it, and, and emotional outbursts. I mean, some sometimes, but sometimes not. And I think that's, that's the whole concept of meeting people where they're at, um, you know, asking a question and some want to, to, to give their story with great insight and reflection. Some just want to say, this is how their day was and they had a mm -hmm. sandwich for lunch. Um, you know, but I, but I do think when I, um, you know, people ask me about the, the criminal justice system and these issues. I mean, we have a system and it's not perfect, but we have a system of, uh, we have a justice system and it results in, uh, in, in many cases, people being put in an institution, um, in a correctional institution, in a, in a penitentiary. The idea is that when they're there, um, they're still human beings. Um, and, 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 you know, 
there is there is lots of good things that happen and it, so i i came into it wanting to learn and i and i i met many people on both sides who who would say yeah this is great you know um relatively of course but but this has been a good experience for me i've been meeting mm. with an elder i've been mm. um i've been working with a psychologist i get my medicines every day i'm working on my addictions um i have friends <laughs> So it's the idea, I guess, that um, it's hard for us to say this is how it's got to be for everyone. But when you go to the core principles, I think that's when we can say, yeah, this is how it should be for everyone. Yeah. Every, and every situation is different, right? Like every single person has had a different path leading up to that point. So every single person needs different treatment and different, uh, you know, help when it comes to battling their demons and, and working through a lot of those issues. I want one more question on this topic, then we'll move on. Um, help me sort of settle a debate because my, my old roommate and I used to talk a lot about recidivism and, and about sort of if people can be rehabilitated. And he often took the position that some people are just broken and that's why we need prisons. And I, I, I had a difficult time with that because I thought everyone has a chance to be I don't want to say fixed because I don't want to say that they're broken, but everyone has a chance to be rehabilitated and there, there is a way for every single person. You just have to either have more patience, take more time. So what are your thoughts on can everyone, no matter what upbringing they've had, be reintroduced in, and become a quote unquote productive member of society? Or are there some cases where, okay, this needs to be um, removed from the general populace and that's just the way it is because there's no other option? You know, I don't know the answer to that question, and I don't want to. I don't want to give an opinion that that that, that that's not informed. Um, that's I fair. do know. I do know that that everyone I met um, was generally quite polite, and was was thankful of the chance to talk and to meet and shared their information. Um, and I had very few um, interactions where I thought, hmm, this person wasn't deserving of my time. In fact, I, d I never had that feeling, to be honest. Um, and then sometimes I'd go and I'd read all these things about what they were, you know, what they were doing there. No, that didn't come across in our meeting because at the end of the day, we were just two human beings saying, how was your week going? Right. Um, and how are things for you? So it, um, it, it, it's very meaningful work that needs attention um, that people are doing, but um, we all need to think a little bit about it, I think. Yeah, just, just empathy. empathy. At, At the, the end, end of the day, day if you, you have, have empathy for your fellow human beings, you think, okay, we're all in this together. We're all just babies growing up trying to figure out how to survive and how to put food on the table, like you said before. Um, but yeah, thank, thanks for sort of entertaining this conversation. I know it's sort of a weird, you know, like bizarre thing to talk about, but I think it's an important conversation to have um, for sure. I think your roommate and you are still going to be uh, <laughs> battling that one out. It's a never-ending debate for sure, but I, that's why I like having them because there are no right, there is no right answer, and nobody really knows for sure because every situation is different. But it's just a, a a cool philosophical kind of uh, con concept to, to talk about. Um, at the end of our time together, I know you're busy. You probably got a full uh, full schedule for today. Uh, but we do a segment called Just Because, where it's the same seven questions to all of our guests, talking about the causes that you care about and the effect that it's had on your lives. Uh, are you okay to do that? Sure. 
Okay, cool. Uh, question one, what's the very first cause you actually even remember caring about? So I think it probably was those letter writing um, campaigns for amnesty. I can't, th I'm, maybe there were others when I was younger, but I, I can't actually remember. Did your parents encourage this? Like, were they kind of like, hey, get down and write, write some letters? Or did this come from your own uh, desires? Uh, they certainly encouraged it. They gave me stamps. They gave me envelopes. They mailed my letters. <laughs> um, they they engaged in conversations with me. Um, so yeah, they, they yeah. supported that for sure. Very good. Uh, question two, if money and politics and logistics were no issue at all for you, what's the first thing you, if you could just snap your fingers and something would happen, what's the first thing you would do uh, in support of your current cause? Um, really bring people together foster some empathy, some understanding, get people to talk to each other, uh, to have uncomfortable conversations and share their thoughts. Is, is that what the museum is doing now? Like, what are you guys doing in the sort of post-COVID world to try to connect people when it's, it's so difficult to <laughs> leave your house these days? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's work that even pre-COVID, this, again, this museum was about bringing people together to dialogue so that it could inspire some positive action. Um, and so, yeah, so that's happening. The people who come here you know, physically to the building and go through the exhibits, but there's virtual tours, there's people who engage with digital story, you know, stories on our digital platforms um, and they comment on them. And so, um, yeah, that's absolutely what we're doing. That's, I think that's, that's the a, exciting stuff. That's one of the coolest things about the organization is just the inclusivity of it. It's like everyone, come on in. Let's let's talk. Whatever your story is, come on in. We'll tell your story, and we'll you know we'll we'll tell you some stories about about the history as well, which is really really cool. Uh, question three: What's the biggest misunderstanding or stigma about your cause? I think people often don't understand what what human rights are. Uh, or they've packaged it up as something they don't need to think about. Uh, and I fully appreciate not everyone wants to, to read about human rights law or the foundations of human rights principles, but they think it doesn't impact them. That's the biggest misunderstanding. And so that's where, you know, we had talked about bringing people to say, these are rights, these are your rights too. This is why you get to apply for jobs and, um, feed your child, have money to feed your children, um, you know, walk freely, speak freely. Yeah. I think that's the, that's the, that's the main point that people need to focus on is that if you take, like people have been taking their rights for granted. And as soon as something gets infringed upon, then you're like, Oh, maybe I should have been fighting for like down the line when, when they were talking about what's that old quote. It's like, first they came for the the, I don't know if it's, if it's the Jews, but I was not a Jew, so I didn't speak anything. And then they came for me, right? And it's like, well, that's what happens. So you should be fighting for all human rights at all points, which is, I think, a hard lesson for people to learn, maybe. Um, and celebrating them, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it, and I don't mean celebrating with a party, but just feeling, understanding what they are and, and recognizing what you have. Yeah. So that's the part about building understanding and where we need education. Yeah. Well said. Uh, question four, what's a time in your life where you had to pivot because plan A wasn't working out, so you had to go to plan B? Um, I can't think of a specific instance where I've had to, 
I mean, surely I've had to pivot in terms of approach. Um, I probably, if I think about it in my experience with doing human rights cases, sometimes you have to decide you're going to come on strong and you're going to educate and this is how we're going to go. And other times you think this is not working. We are not, there's no, we're not relating in any way and so okay let's pivot and let's step back a little let this person have some space to share their side and look for where we can find some commonality mm -hmm. yeah very important for sure uh question five what's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given um i was uh so uh I recall when I was at the Manitoba Human Rights Commission, we had a wonderful strategy. We had a plan, we had timelines, we had deliverables, we had measurable goals, and we pulled together a council of elders uh, and to talk to them about this was our plan. We wanted to go to Northern communities and this is how we were going to do it. And their advice to us, to me was slow down, slow down, um, let people get to know you like build a relationship with people and then people will, you know, people will work with you. And I think about that a lot. That's such good advice. Cause a lot, I think a lot of times in the work we do at the foundation too, it's kind of like, you know, you, you think that you're the expert and, and, and a lot of times as far as education is concerned, you, you might be, but when it comes to certain specific communities or certain individuals, you're not the expert on their life or their experience or their, or their path up to that point, right? You're, you're the expert in, in the general sense. So yeah, I love that advice. And a, a few people have said similar things in that. It's just like, slow down, take your time and, and listen as opposed to imposing and, and talking a lot. Just just listen. And I, I love that. That's very, very important. Uh, what advice would you give your 10 year old self if you could talk to her right now? Um, be proud, hmm. be proud of who you are. Don't worry so much that people won't like you or they'll think that you're different. Um, feel confident in who you are and people will, people will, um, support you. They'll come with you. Definitely. Very cool. Last question. Thank you, Aisha, for doing this. Um, the last question is the biggest and sort of maybe hardest one, but uh, question seven is what do you want to be remembered for? <laughs> um, I want to be, I want to be remembered for um, advocating for others, uh, for a commitment to respect and and equity and equality for other people um i want to be remembered uh raising my three kids and and being a good a good friend and family member um good kid Beautiful. good colleague all of those things <laughs> probably Very... what you want to be remembered for <laughs> yeah that, that, pretty much I'm, I'm there with you um Thank you, Aisha. This was wonderful. Uh, I love hearing you speak, and I look forward to all the great work that I know that you're going to do because uh, you know it's it's important work and it's it's exciting to see the direction that the CMHR is going in. And uh, with you at the helm, I think they're in they're in they're in good hands. Thanks, Nolan. Thanks. Fun chatting with you. Thank you again to Aisha Khan for the wonderful, illuminating conversation about some very vital topics. Uh, I'm really honored to have 
Aisha on the season premiere of the podcast um, to learn more about what the CMHR has. Their website is an awesome resource and has tons of stuff. If you go to humanrights.ca, uh, you can find a whole bunch of information as well as the schedule for their upcoming uh, events and things that they'll be hosting at the uh, at the museum. And thank you very much for listening. I know it's been We've been off for a, a month or two, partially due to COVID and partially just to try and figure out how to do interviews and reschedule people who were supposed to be on the podcast in person before we had uh, this whole shutdown and everything. Uh, and we're trying to figure out this new normal, as it were. And I hope you are staying safe and healthy out there. It's a crazy time. So please make sure you're staying distant, you know, socially distant, washing your hands, uh, making sure you're wearing a mask and following all the protocols and, and just taking care of each other because... Um, I'm noticing personally for sure that staying connected is becoming a little bit more difficult than it used to be. So, you know, if you haven't in a while, give someone a call or a text or a tweet or a phone call or a, or a private message or anything that you can do to, to keep in touch with friends and family and loved ones. All music on the Because and Effect podcast was composed and produced by Trenton Burton. Hear more of his music at trentonburton.com. And Because and Effect is a podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation. To learn more about what we're up to, go to wpgfdn.org or by searching at WPGFDN on all social media platforms. My name is Nolan Bicknell. You can find me at Nolan Bicknell everywhere. And remember, the rights of every man are diminished when the rights of one man are threatened. Bye-bye. <laughs>